0: This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Our scripture reading, reading for today is from Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23. If you need a Bible, there's some in the back of the pews, and you're welcome to use those. If you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take one with you today. Again, it's Matthew 13, 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying... Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has... and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while and in another 60, and in another 30. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Adrian. Good morning. Uh, Before we get into Matthew 13, I want to draw your attention to one phrase here before we pray. And it's the end of this first section after Jesus tells this cryptic story about a farmer. Uh, He says, this phrase, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. I think that phrase has just been standing out to me as I've been thinking about this passage, as I've been thinking about entering into the parables. Matthew 13 is going to be full of a lot of interesting stories, cryptic stories at times, stories that make you scratch your head, stories that kind of find a side doorway into your heart. You're like, I don't know what that means. And you're chewing on it later. And then later you're like poking holes in your assumptions about life. And and little by little, it changes you. That's what parables do. They kind of like come in the side door for those that are paying attention. And my question for us is, do we slow down enough to pay attention? Do you want to? And that's a real question. I don't mean that in some sort of like uh, condescending way. I think it's a good question for you to ask. Do you want to pay attention to the words of Jesus? Because the message he gives in Matthew 13, the questions he's answering, the, the message he's pushing forward for his people has profound relevance for the moment we're in. And it's really easy for us, as actually we'll see in this passage, to glance past the words of Jesus, or to let them kind of enter into our brain, or we hear with our ears to some degree, but we don't receive it, we don't meditate on it, we don't chew on it, we don't begin to process what would it look like to respond to this, and we move beyond the words of Jesus, and we become like these unfruitful seeds that land in hardened or infested soils. And I think it's just a good question for us to ask as we open our hearts up to this passage. Do you this morning have ears to hear? Is your heart softened to the word of God? Is there a curiosity about the kingdom and about the king and what it means to follow Jesus? And I'm going to pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would give us that sort of curiosity as we listen to the teaching of Jesus. So join me as we pray. Jesus, we are so, so thankful for your faithfulness to us. Your mercy is new every morning. Your faithfulness reaches to the mountains. It is stunning to think of how faithful you have been to me and to every story in this room, to every person joining online. Your faithfulness to each of us in our stories is stunning. Your mercy and your kindness, the way you've provided, the way you've convicted, the way you've encouraged, the way you've healed, the way you've restored, the way you've brought us back when we've wandered. Your faithfulness is beautiful. And your faithfulness to your people, your church, throughout the generations, throughout the ages, in really dark moments throughout history, in really painful seasons and really beautiful times, you've continued to do what you promised to do. You said, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it." And you've done it. Uh, You've been doing it. And we're a part of this moment in history. We get to enter into the scene right here and right now. And I pray you would, Holy Spirit, help us to hear your words, to receive them, not just merely in our heads, but that we'd receive them in our hearts, that we would incorporate them into our lives, and that you, through the Spirit, would bear fruit in our life for the sake of your kingdom. We want to be people that evidence that the fruit of the spirit, the evidence that God is with us, that God is among us, that God dwells within us as a people, that we'd be full of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and humility, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, that so these things would just mark us as a people, but we need your spirit for it. We are utterly dependent on you. And so as you soften our heart to be receptive to your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Uh, In this moment in history, as a resident in the Denver metro area, or if you're joining us from out of town, welcome, glad you're here, wherever you live, Uh, but as a resident in the Denver area, what does it feel like to be a Christian? In this moment, in our cultural kind of history, with where we are right now in 2021, the fall, what does it feel like to you to be a Christian? As you engage in your workplace, as you live in your neighborhood, as you interact with family or extended family, as you engage in communication and phone calls and meetings and social media, what does it feel like to be a Christian? I I imagine different thoughts coming to different minds, and so there's not like an answer for this. Some of you feel like really encouraged right now. Some of you feel really angry right now. Some of you feel really Embarrassed, or conflicted or confused right now? For all sorts of different reasons. It depends on how this moment is hitting you. Some of you feel really fueled up and hopeful. Some of you feel excited. Some of you feel hopeless or depleted or exhausted. Some of you aren't sure how to engage. Some of you are, are wrestling with real doubts right now. So how does it feel to you to be a Christian in this moment? I remember, for me, about 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago now, uh, I moved to Colorado from Chicago. And, uh, and I moved out here with my wife, and we moved out here to help uh, start a church. We started a church in Fort Collins. Uh, but I, I had got a job when I moved out here in Westminster. And I just spent the past, I don't know, nearly a decade of my life in kind of Christian education. And so it was kind of Christian Bible college, learning Greek and Hebrew, and then seminary, and then grad school. I was in Chicago at Wheaton, and in that kind of environment, I was just around Christians all the time. I worked in the admissions offices of each of those universities, and kind of learning and trying to help people get connected, and so I'm even connecting with young kind of high schoolers that are Christians, thinking about going to a Christian college, and this was just kind of the world I was in for years and years and years, and then I moved out here to help start a church, and to begin, it was kind of in the bivocational thing, so you're just getting a job, making money, and meeting people, and I moved, and I got a job at a secular uh, college, a uh, career college based out of Westminster, and I worked on an admissions team with 12 people, and I was the only Christian. And so as I'm like working on, like building friendship, and just loving and getting to know them, like turns out that uh, my coworkers like weren't interested in Greek and Hebrew words. I'm like, that wasn't what they wanted to talk about. Like, go figure. I'm like, oh, you're not interested in ancient Eastern history? And they're like, "Uh, no, I'm kidding. I didn't, I wasn't that naive, but it was a culture shock of like, I am day in and day out the only Christian in this environment. And it was the first time I'd experienced that in a long time. And so I, I built legitimate friendship and I made community and and sought to kind of know and love and and be loved and cared for by different people, but kind of the undercurrent of my experience on this team was varying degrees of kind of opinions about who I was as people found out. Not only am I a Christian, which was again not common at the place where I was, but also I was like helping start a church, and so that awareness for me led to all sorts of kind of experiences. For some people, there was a sense of just bewilderment confusion people like i don't even know people still did that anymore and uh also some condescension people just kind of like looking at me and kind of changing their opinions about me as they'd find out some of those things for some of my friends there would be moments of ridicule as i would maybe try not to participate in certain conversations or certain activities that just didn't feel healthy for who i was try not to be judgmental but tried to just grace, graciously, kind of like not participate. Felt ridiculed at times, and there were some people that really saw me as a, just a danger to kind of what their hope of the future of uh, our kind of culture is. and And those experiences were just things I felt, and I imagine many of you feel those things day in day out in your environment, in your neighborhoods, in your friend groups, maybe among your extended family, or at your. Job to varying degrees, and it hasn't always been that way. There was a time, maybe several decades ago, where Christianity was more of a centerpiece in culture, had more uh, kind of more of the prevailing cultural narrative of Christianity was was shaping kind of cultural values, and so to be a Christian didn't feel like weird or it didn't feel like uh, oppressive to be a Christian. It felt like, yeah, people are Christians and that's normal. And to be a pastor, maybe a few generations ago was something that was seen as like commendable or an honorable vocation to some degree. It's like, oh, it's like the neighborhood pastor, you know? And, uh, and it just changed over the decades. It's changed over that So if I like get on a plane now, this is if I hop on a plane, there's a time where I would be like, all right, I'm excited to have some conversations with people next to me. And I'm just not as excited about those conversations as I used to be. Uh, so you sit down, and like maybe put like the earbuds in and you're just like listening to music and you're like, I should be kind and loving and at least look at them. And if they look back and it's like, all right, well, hi, how are you? Take the headphones off. And how are you? Good. How are you? In short conversation. And I'm a pretty extroverted person. And so it's just like you start talking and inevitably I would ask the question, you know, what do you do? And as soon as I did, I'd be like, ah, oh because you know, you're just waiting for it. That question is gonna come right back at me and I'm not pumped about that moment anymore. Um, and so, you know, what, what do you do? Oh, you know, I'm, I work wherever. And I'm like, oh, and they're like, well, what do you what do? You do? And I'm like, ah, you know, I'm a teacher. And, uh, and, <laughs> and they're like, oh, what do you teach? I'm like, oh, you know, ancient history, <laughs> about super relevant stuff. And they're like, yeah, like, what? I'm like, mm, I work for a church. They're like, oh, what do you do for a church? I'm, are you a pastor? I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor. Fine, I, I, I confess, like busted. <laughs> totally busted. I'm a pastor. And often, if there's no foundation of a relationship where they have a chance to, like, experience just me as a human uh, before knowing I'm a pastor, all these assumptions just kind of, like, jump in about what that means about me, what it means about what I believe, what I value, what I'm like. And often it's kind of this like non-starter for the rest of the conversation. They're like, oh, good, you know, headphones for them. They didn't have to have headphones and now they're like finding some way to get like out of the conversation. And, uh, and I imagine again, for, for some of you, you feel that culturally. Uh, what does it feel like to be right now in a moment where the way of Jesus is an ideological minority? That is not the prevailing cultural narrative, and it's actually seen as a narrative that is increasingly getting pushed to the margins in different ways. And it leads to some questions, and so one of the questions that people are asking is a question about the future of the church. What does this mean to see over the past decades and generations, Christianity get kind of pushed further and further out of the center to the point where we are now kind of very wholly in what people would call a post-Christian culture or post-Christian context, where there's desire for some of the things Christianity brought to the table, like love, justice, service, equity, compassion, education, things that movements of Christianity brought to our culture, that now it's like we want to take those things and we want to kind of push the authority of God out of the center. And so we want the kind of like love for justice and compassion and humility and grace that kind of Christianity has the ethic that Christianity has brought and some of the structures that Christianity has brought, but to push out the God of the kingdom. And so that's the moment we're in. And for a lot of people, I think the future means kind of continuing to move in that that direction to the point where kind of Christianity will be a thing of the past. Uh, Christianity will be something that fades away, and it'll just be like an old tradition, like kind of Thor and Loki from the sort of like comic book kind of stuff. And so you kind of have this question. So the question isn't what will happen to the church, but another question for you to ask is in the midst of that moment, what's going to happen to your own faith? Your own faith, your own journey with Jesus as you sit in the midst of this moment and you feel increasingly kind of like alone in the way you think as you feel more and more competing ideas around you people that see things that you believe as a real threat to the things that they value that they look at you maybe in condescending ways or make assumptions about you that don't feel fair but they're there for reasons because of mistakes that the church has made throughout history and part of the church's presence in society and some of the issues that we've had as the people of god our own failures our own faults they have assumptions so what does that mean about your faith makes you start asking questions. Does it make you doubt? Does it make it scare you at all? Matthew 13 is given to a community. Jesus is speaking stories, these parables to a community that's experiencing that. They had this expectation that when the Messiah would come, it was going to lead to this Revival in the nation of Israel. Like everybody was going to be pumped that the Messiah is finally here. Everybody's going to be excited and all of Israel is going to kind of be like, here's our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Let's build momentum. Let's get ready for a revolution. Let's drive out the Romans. Let's like set up this kingdom and let's get after it. And so the first followers that actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah had assumptions or expectations about what that kingdom growth would look like. And what they expected is everybody to agree with them and to get excited with them for their family and their friends and their employer and their neighbors to be excited with them. And what they are finding when you get to Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12 is that's not what they're experiencing. Jesus came on the scene preaching this good news about God's kingdom. And if you're not familiar with what the good news of the kingdom is, fundamentally, it's that we live in a world that was created by God and we're designed by God to experience flourishing life as we trust in his reign over us as our creator. As we walk with him, experience his love, walk in his presence, commune with him, and then reflect his character, or we say, reflect his image, bear his image to one another by being servant-hearted towards one another, loving towards one another, gracious towards one another, honoring towards one another, using the gifts that God's given us to serve others as other people use the gifts they have to serve us. That's how communities and families and societies and civilizations and cities were designed to be. That's the kingdom, flourishing life under the reign of our creator. The kingdom where the creator reigns over his people, and we trust his reign, and we follow him, and we trust his character, and we seek to reflect him. That's the kingdom, and as we all know, that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where we have rejected that design. We've rejected our creator, and our hearts are bent. And so we take all those things like love, and we co-opt love to make it about me getting what I need and what I want. We co-opt vocation, instead of being a way to serve humanity and seek the common good of my fellow humans, we use vocation to build ourselves up and establish our own worth or superiority or a means to make money to establish some degree of significance or comforts or whatever it is for you. We take family and we kind of like cloister together with our family to build this like little community to keep ourselves safe and we control our family in ways that damage our children and don't give them the freedom that they need to actually experience life and become who God's designed them to be. We experience this bent. Experience of all these things. Then we build cities and we build structures and we build governments, but now they're broken and they're corrupted and there's pain all over the place. And this is the broken world we live in. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's saying good news, the Bible where there's gospel, the presence of God has come back into this world to restore what's been broken, to forgive humanity for the ways we've turned against the reign of God, rebelled against the reign of our king to reconcile us through his sacrificial love, through his death on the cross, atoning for our sin, reconciling us to God's presence so we can once again experience transformation to be who we've been designed to be. It's the kingdom. To learn what it means to be human, what humans were designed to be. The kingdom of God and this kingdom movement is, in its very essence, helping humans return to who we were designed to be as children of the creator, created to walk in fellowship with him and bear his image in the way we love one another and love God. That's it. It's not crazy complicated, but there are all these assumptions in and among the people of Israel, based on some of the prophets and different things that were said that were misunderstood in ways that people expected when this king comes and he's coming to bring this kingdom, it was going to mean, one, this kind of immediate circumstantial liberation from Roman oppression. Two, is going to mean the reestablishment of a theocracy where the nation of Israel had their temple worship restored to the way it should have been and had kind of foreign powers kicked out of their land, where they once again had the freedom to be this kind of theocratic, geopolitical nation where everybody would look at them and say, yes, their God is the God of Israel. So these expectations of a certain kind of kingdom, and Jesus in these moments is correcting those expectations. He's correcting those expectations. He comes on the scene and he's sharing the good news. I'm here to restore the kingdom of God. And as people come to him, he's not saying, clean yourself up, do better. He's just graciously welcoming people into his presence, promising them rest and restoration. When people come near, their sins are forgiven. Their shame is wiped away. They feel loved and seen. Even the vulnerable and the marginalized and the people who have failed and have regrets and a life full of regrets come to Jesus and find that they're valued and honored that they feel like for the first time clean and forgiven, and then people experience healing and restoration in all areas of their life, and they're changing. And so you like have this image, and when you get to chapter 11 and 12, the disciples had the sense that this is going to explode. And in chapter 11 and 12, it doesn't explode the way they want it to. What explodes on the scene is division. What explodes on the scene is rejection. In chapter 11 and 12, all these stories of all the people that were rejecting Jesus. Some people saw him as a massive threat to their value system and their way of life. Some people were just disinterested. Some people would see the power of God at work in Jesus and they'd see somebody healed and they'd just kind of like not care that much and get back to the status quo of life. Some people were semi-interested and they'd start listening and following and then something else would come up and they'd be like, well, I'm gonna kind of go back to this other thing. And, and the followers of Jesus began to be perplexed about what's going on. This isn't what we expected. And that's the moment we pick up on in Matthew 13. What's going on? This isn't what we expected. What does it mean to be a group of followers in a community where now my family thinks I'm crazy? Jesus's family thinks he's crazy. My boss doesn't want me around anymore if I'm gonna keep hanging out with him. My synagogue leader thinks now I'm a part of the problem and I'm gonna be a big threat to the synagogue. Like people are seeing the one I'm following as a one who's undermining their value system. And all of a sudden, they're, instead of feeling like they're part of this cultural revolution, this momentum that's building towards this beautiful experience of liberation, they're finding them feeling marginalized, kicked out of the center, feeling ostracized by friends and community, and they're in that moment. And it's in that moment Jesus gives these parables to help people reset their expectations of the kingdom. And that's fundamentally what the parables are doing. They're resetting people's expectations about the nature of the kingdom and the way the kingdom grows. And so I want you to see it in the passage, because the the scene is pretty powerful, where you imagine the disciples feeling this. Maybe they're beginning to get frustrated, and they've been rejected, and they went through these cities and told people the good news, and the vast majority of the people weren't even interested, and many people thought they were, you know, a real threat. And so they're sitting here, and all of a sudden there's this moment where Jesus is on the side of the Sea of Galilee, and this huge crowd comes. And this big crowd comes and Jesus is like, okay, I'm gonna push out on a boat to create this natural amphitheater as the crowd's gonna be on the shore. Jesus pushes out so he can just speak to all of them. And I just imagine the kind of inner circle of Jesus be like, okay, here we go. You know, like finally, big crowd. He's going to explain everybody to everybody what's going on. It's going to make sense. And then every, everybody's going to be like, oh, now we get it. You're the Messiah. I didn't, okay, all right, okay, I get it. We're in. Let's kind of start this revolution and let's go, right? That's what, I think it's it, what they expected. And so they get him ready and they paddle the boat out and they're sitting on the boat and Jesus on the boat. And they're like, this is like going to be the Sermon on the Mount thing all over again. Epic teaching. And Jesus like, is like, so... There's a farmer who's kind of incompetent. He, like, missed out on three-fourths of the seeds he was trying to sow. And, like, uh, do you get it? <laughs> like, that's, I mean, there's this short little story about a seemingly incompetent farmer. And then he just stops and says, He who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> just imagine the disciples, like, Ah. ah, you know, just like, the, Like, remember what you did, like the kind of, let's go back to the greatest hits, remember like, blessed are the poor, that really hit some people, and you are the light of the world, you know, like, uh, you know, these kinds of things, you know, don't be anxious about your life, the Father cares for you, these things landed, this cryptic story is just confusing, and I feel it, like, have you ever felt that thing where you like talked up a show? Uh, to a friend or a family member, like you're like this is one of my favorite shows, and you sit down and they're gonna watch it with you, and it's like the episode that they watch with you is like the worst episode you've ever seen. Like it's like and there's that inappropriate scene that's not normally in there that you're like sitting with your in-laws hypothetically, and you're like, uh, oh, it's not normally like this, I promise. And uh, anybody anybody done that with? No, just me. Okay. Um, you are like talk up this thing, you think it's gonna be great, and everybody's gonna be excited, and it's like doesn't hit the way it hit for you. Uh, or you talk something up and, and you share it with somebody and they're just not even that interested in it. And you just feel that moment where they're like coming to Jesus like you you kind of missed on that one. You kinda missed and that's exactly what they feel. It's exactly what they feel. And they go up to Jesus after he shares this story and we'll come back to the story itself, but they ask this question in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Like, you missed your moment. This could have been big, and you missed. I don't understand. And so Jesus explains to them why he's gonna speak in parables, and he's gonna, over the next chapter, Matthew's gathered together a bunch of parables that have a really profound impact on us, but parables for Jesus aren't the way we tend to think about stories. So why does he speak in parables? What is a parable? The word parable, kind of Greek foundation, is to cast alongside. So you have a reality and you cast a story alongside of it to help make sense of it. So when we think about what a parable is in our own kind of like vernacular, we think about something like the boy who cried wolf. And so when we think about parable, we think about a fictional story that communicates a moral truth. That's the way we tend to think about it. So in the boy who cried wolf, it's just kind of a graphic way to haunt children uh, around lying, like don't lie, because if you lie over and over and over, eventually a wolf's going to chase you and eat you. You know, is a more or less uh, don't lie is the story. For Jesus, it's not just a fictional story to communicate a moral truth. Uh, for Jesus, there, there's a more profound kind of understanding of what the parable is, and so I'm going to read to you just kind of my definition of the way I would uh, the way I would unpack it and kind of explain it. It's a short fictional story that Jesus used to both conceal and reveal the nature of his kingdom movement. It's a short fictional story that Jesus used to both conceal and reveal the nature of his kingdom movement. There's a reality that's happening. They expected a momentum-building kingdom that would conquer the Romans and drive them out, and everybody in Israel would believe, and it'd be this exciting kind of experience. And what they're experiencing was large amounts of rejection, the vast majority of the people were rejecting Jesus, or, or at a minimum, disinterested. And so Matthew's going to start painting pictures of these religious leaders as opponents to Jesus, the crowds as these kind of neutral, semi-interested parties, and then these committed disciples. And you're seeing the crowds grow, but Jesus isn't like catching them the way the disciples want him to catch them. And so he casts alongside that reality a parable, casts a story alongside of it to help his followers make sense of what's happening, to help them understand and so he explains to them the nature of this kind of like idea and parables here with, by alluding to some really, or quoting some really significant Old Testament passages. So I want to read this to you. Here's what Jesus said. He answered them and said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I want you to hear that again, because that's not what we want to hear. To you it has been given... I'm going to come to this Isaiah quote in a moment. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is a hardness of heart that is so prevalent among the people of Israel that they can see him heal and do miracles of restoration where a man with a withered hand is restored right in front of their face. And instead of standing in awe at the power of the creator who took on flesh to dwell among them, they say, it's Sabbath. You shouldn't do that. They can see a person who had never walked in their whole life be restored. And Jesus speaks over them that their sins are forgiven. And instead of marveling at the authority of God to heal and redeem and forgive and restore what's been broken, they say, you can't do that. They can see with their eyes, but they're not seeing. They can hear teachings about the wisdom of God and the ways that God has created humans to live. And instead of standing in awe at this teaching and receiving it as the word of God who took on flesh to dwell among us, they reject him as one who's outside of his rank, who's above his station, who's undermining the status quo. They see with their eyes, but they don't see. And they hear with their ears, but they don't hear. And as a judgment upon their hardness of heart, Jesus speaks to them in parables so that they won't see. And he says, to help you understand why that makes sense, he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 6. And I need you to, like, get into context. I, I care too much about Old Testament quotations, not too much, I think, I think enough. Uh, but I, I want to bring you into this, but it's going to mean, like, think for a moment. So I'm, I'm asking you to engage mentally with us for a moment to understand why this moment is a really significant moment in the movement of God's kingdom. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel. We call it the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah, all these prophecies about an offspring from this tribe, right, is going to come and bring redemption, this messianic movement that's going to bring restoration to all that God had promised. And to back up one more step, God had promised through the nation of Israel to restore not just the nation of Israel, but to bring restoration to the whole world. And so there's this theme throughout all of the Bible that an offspring of Eve, if you think about Adam and Eve as these first humans, an offspring of this woman is going to come and defeat an enemy who tempted humanity to turn away from God's reign. And that offspring, that seed, same word in Hebrew, offspring, seed, it's Zerah, that seed, that offspring is going to conquer this enemy and take a mortal wound himself to be struck in the heel by a serpent, it will lead to a mortal blow that will actually crush the head of the serpents and be the means by which God restores everything that's been broken in the world. The way he restores the kingdom. And so the whole Old Testament you're waiting for the Zarah. You're waiting for the seed. You're, You're waiting for the offspring. And then the prophecy goes to Abraham, that Abraham, you and your offspring, your Zerah, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, restoration is going to come to every human, to the world, the whole world can be restored through the offspring, the Zerah of Abraham. And that Zerah is going to come through particularly this tribe of Judah. And then the tribe of Judah comes, and there's a king named David. And the the offspring is going to be a child of David. And so David comes, David goes, and then the people of Israel reject the reign of God just like Adam and Eve did. And they say no to the reign of God. They start compromising. They do injustice and corrupt their own culture. They compromise with pagan powers around them. They start worshiping other gods over and over and over. For generation after generation, they rebel against the reign of God just like Adam and Eve did, just like you and I did. And just for generation after generation, God's sending prophets to speak to them, calling them, Return, return. You're turning from who you were designed to be. God rescued you from Egypt. He liberated you from bondage. He gave you his presence. He taught you his wisdom. He gave you his instructions for life. And you've turned from him just like Adam and Eve, just like you and me. Return, 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 prophet after prophet. And they would reject the prophets, they'd kill the prophets, they'd disband the prophets, they would hardened their hearts against the prophets. And that happened for so long that finally, the nation of Israel is so broken that God is going to bring judgment. Just like Adam and Eve are exiled from the presence of God, now the whole nation of Israel is gonna be exiled from this promised land. They're gonna be removed from God's presence. And it's gonna happen through a nation called Babylon and Isaiah is preparing the people for the impending destruction. He's saying, judgment's coming and your hearts are too far gone. So go on hearing, but you're not going to hear. Go on seeing, but you're not going to see. You're not going to believe. You're not going to understand. You're not going to turn. If you would turn, God would heal you, but you're not going to, because this message has been coming to you for generations. And then in Isaiah 6, he gives this prophecy. Keep on hearing, do not hear. Do not understand, keep on seeing, but don't perceive make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed the idea is the rejection and the rebellion is so severe their hearts are so hardened that god is like it's end game judgment's coming you've rejected the reign of god and then at the end of the prophecy this is what it says at the last verse of Isaiah 6 and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So here's the image, this land of plenty and abundance, like a thriving paradise garden with trees and flourishing and rivers and life and fruitfulness. That's what the promised land was supposed to be, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the rebellion, just like for Adam and Eve, as they're exiled, Babylon is going to decimate them destroy the temple, destroy the homes, destroy the people, death and destruction. And it's this image of all those trees getting cut down, like the nation of Israel, if it were one big tree getting cut down to the stump. Desolation. Where there should have been flourishing, it is now desolation. And then at the end, he says, the holy seed, Zerah, is its stump. Somehow this stump becomes the seed. Somehow the, the desolation gives life to this seed that's going to bring restoration. And, and the rest of Isaiah's prophecy is going to start paying attention to that holy seed. So in Isaiah 7:14 you'll get this kind of, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in Isaiah 9, you'll get, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, this new kind of government, will be upon his shoulders. He'll establish this kingdom that'll bring increasing joy and peace that will last forever and ever and ever. A new kind of kingdom. And you'll keep tracking that seed, and all of a sudden the seed is talked about as a servant who's not coming with military prowess and power, but coming with sacrifice and love and humility as a one who's going to lay down his life, who's going to be pierced for our transgressions. And you keep tracking that, And by the time you get to Isaiah 55, you're experiencing this explosion of fruitfulness, where the desert land is going to give way to flourishing life, where the dried up ground is going to be experiencing abundance, where instead of thorn bushes, a cypress is going to bloom and tower. Instead of these briars, myrtles are going to be blooming, and it's like this flourishing life all through this holy seed. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene now and tells a story about an incompetent farmer, the seed here is loaded with meaning. This is the beginning of what God has promised to bring restoration, not just to us, but to everything. And Jesus is saying, I am the sower and the seed. He's the one in whom all of the hopes of the world, all of your hopes for love and justice and righteousness and rest and forgiveness and grace, all of it, all of it comes through this Jesus, the seed. And so when Jesus shares the Isaiah passage, he's saying, I'm here to make sense of the brokenness of the world, but also to bring hope. And so he says to his followers, it's been given to you to understand the secrets of the kingdom. And the secret isn't like a hidden kind of like keep it away from you in Greek. It's musterion, which is this thing that's being revealed. It's right now being revealed. And Jesus is like, I'm revealing to you the hope of the world. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, that you've been hoping for, and yes, what that means is many people will persist in a hardness of heart. And so when Jesus speaks in parables, it's with this awareness that the way that the kingdom grows is not through cultural influence. It's not through political dominance. It's not by the people of God being the culturally dominant force kind of requiring everybody else to follow kingdom ethics. It's not by us convincing everybody to kind of like believe Jesus. It's not, it's not by that. It's this seed who lays down his life and one person at a time the seed is sown and some have it fall away immediately aren't even interested some here for a little while and then just the pains and the trials of this world stamp it out and they collapse under the difficulty of following Jesus and they reject it. Some grow up for a little while and then eventually they're just distracted by the sort of preoccupation with the things that this world can do and can be and can offer and they start getting this appetite for worldly possessions and worldly goods and they abandon Jesus. And that's just the way it has always been. It's the way it has always been and some will believe. And when they believe, and the love of this king, the sacrificial death and resurrection of this king, and the hope of this king, when they believe in the kingdom, it begins to bear fruit. Some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. And that fruitfulness is, begins to transform lives, not by kind of these dynamic leaders leading these dynamic movements, but through people hearing about the humble, gentle servant king who loved them who saw them in their pain, who saw them in their grief, who saw them in their regret, who saw them in their weakness, who saw them in their limitation, who saw them in their shame, who saw them in their rebellion, who loved them and laid down his life for them, to atone for them, to cleanse them, to wash them, to reconcile them to God. And as people turn to him, as they are in this story and as they have for the past 2,000 years, there's inside-out transformation. You feel the love of God, you experience the presence of God's spirit among you, and you begin to change. And that change bears fruit and this evidence that God is with you. And that fruit isn't domination, it isn't winning the argument, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's gentleness, it's goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And as that changes you and begins to bear fruit in your life, it begins to lead to others and you join the sower in sowing the seeds of the kingdom. And that one seed that planted and began to bear fruit now bears 30, 60, maybe 100. And it grows, and it grows. All the while, many, many reject it. You will have friends who will fall away. You will have people who think you're a threat. You will have people who condescend on you and think you're insane. You'll have people who think you're backwards and you will feel at times like a beleaguered ideological minority. You'll feel weary. You'll feel at times potentially humiliated. You will be rejected, and you will lose friends, and the kingdom will keep going. Always. It always has. There's no threat to the kingdom of God. In fact, throughout history, it is in times where the church felt most belittled, most beleaguered, most pushed to the margins where the kingdom of God moved forward, because it's never moved forward most prominently through power. It's never moved forward most prominently through moments of cultural affluence and cultural kind of like fluidity where it just worked and everybody was like, oh my gosh, you're a Christian. That's so cool. That has never been how the kingdom primarily moved forward. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for that reality in this parable. This is how the kingdom grows. He's resetting our expectations. So take a deep breath. God is on the move. We don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to feel like you have to join some kind of like political party on the left or the right to fight this cultural war. You can listen, you can learn, you can love, but our hope is in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is moving. And it's moving through humility, it's moving through compassion, it's moving through love, it's moving through truth and the truth of the gospel as it continues to change one life at a time, as it always has. And that gives me incredible hope You wake up tomorrow, you follow Jesus, you walk with him, you do your job, you love people, you pray for opportunities to serve people, to speak the truth of the gospel, and a lot of people are gonna think you're nuts. Like, prepare for it, Jesus said so. He just told us. But some, some that seed will go down into a soil that's just ready to explode with fruitfulness. And that's why we're here. Because men and women in the past generations have been faithful. Through painful moments, beautiful moments, they've been faithful. And for 2,000 years, that seed that was planted went to these communities where many would reject and some would believe. And the seed would sink down and it would bring change. And that 12 became 500, and the 500 became 3,000. 3,000 became 6,000. The 6,000 got scattered, and it starts making its way to North Africa, and it makes its way to modern-day Europe and the Middle East, and it keeps spreading. And a couple hundred years later, most of the known world at that time in those kind of regions had heard the good news of the kingdom. It's becoming to kind of like experience this transformation. Over the next 2,000 years, that message, that seed would be planted at this good news of the kingdom, and culture after culture, civilization after civilization, gen- generation after generation to the point where the world is blooming with people that walk with Jesus and know the love of God and have experienced forgiveness and transformation and hope and healing and are learning with failures to bear the fruit of the spirit and to show the flourishing power of God's kingdom but there are threats there are threats for your soul The primary function of this parable is to help make sense of what's happening, to encourage you that this is the way the kingdom grows. A secondary function is a warning that there are real threats to your soul. There's an enemy who wants to throw lies at you to deceive you and turn you away from the wisdom of God. He's been here since Adam and Eve in the garden with these little lies. Did God really say? Here's here's the way he plays his card to you, to your kids, to your friends. It's always like this. Sure, maybe God said, but I bet God's holding something back from you. If you really want joy, don't go the way of God. Come this way instead. And you're like, well, but didn't God say that if I turn away from him, it leads to destruction and pain and death? He's like, did God really say that? He's like, actually, yeah, he did. But that's always his lie. Turn away here and did God, you will not surely die. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal to turn from God's design for the way you think about your vocation. Instead of using your vocation to love and serve people, use it as a way to climb the ladder. Make something of yourself. Climb over people. Instead of seeing God's vision for marriage as a way to give of yourself to actually love and serve your spouse, now this is about what's in it for you. This is about what's in it for you. You've given enough. It's time to get. Or if you're not getting, get out. If there's a way to think about your possessions and the accumulation of more and more and more, this greed that just kind of is this non like insatiable appetite for more and better versus generosity and humility, where he'd say something to one of his followers, like, Why don't you just go sell in everything you have? Give the money to the poor and come follow me. You don't need that stuff for joy. Did God really say that? Yeah. He really did. It's beautiful. And so are these temptations, these lies, and these lies kind of make their way in. And then there's pain. There's challenges. There's been so much pain over the past few years. Maybe you've experienced pain with the church. The church is a mess. We've always been a mess. I just say Christianity has always been full of messy people. That's why we worship a Savior who forgives and restores and redeems little by little. Do you know when you say yes to Jesus, you don't magically become perfect? Anybody figure that out yet? You're like, I did. Like, "Eh, Well, okay. Um, (sighs) You didn't. We're, We're a mess. That's why we worship a God who laid down his life for us, who shed his blood to forgive us and change us, and the Spirit's working. So we stumble and we fall. Some people have been hurt by that, and you take responsibility for the ways you've contributed to pain. But the experience of pain, if that's a reason to run away from God, as it has been in kind of modern history, deconstruction is like the new thing, right? Let's write books about it and give people kits about how to do it well. Um, It's like, if there's pain or if there's doubt or if there's questions, let's run away from God because I must be the first person ever to ask that question. Are you? It's possible. And if that sounds condescending, I'm sorry. I don't want, I should, I get it. I get the questions. Deconstruction has its place. There's so much that needs to be deconstructed about cultural Christianity, as we think about what does it mean to be faithful, there's always stuff that we've carried baggage from our past just as the people of God that we always want to be learning and shedding to hold fast to Jesus and his word and what his design is for not just me following Jesus, but for a church to follow him together, to do it together. But if you're experiencing pain, there's ways to lean in to process that instead of leaning out. So that's the threat. Or just like it says in the passage, the cares of this world, just being preoccupied, distracted, obsessed with the things of this world, social activity, accumulation, vocation, friendship, family, all the things you can just build on your own power. We get obsessed with these things and they can choke out our faith where we don't even have space for Jesus anymore. We don't have time to slow down with him and enjoy him. These are threats. And when you see those, and if you have ears to hear that, if you hear those things, you're like, man, I feel that. Man, that's evidence that the spirit is in you. But you need to slow down and pay attention And say, what does it mean to turn to him again and again and again? And as you stay faithful to Jesus, with all of our wandering, all of our failure, all of our mess, experiencing his love and forgiveness, he changes us. And as he changes us little by little, in our little part in human history, he is also changing the world. And it's a joy to be a part of that. And that gives me hope. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we pray right now that you would open people's hearts to your presence. And to your voice, Holy Spirit, would you speak to your people right now? Would you give encouragement and hope to the weary? For those that are experiencing real doubt and confusion, questions, I pray you draw near to them. Protect them from the evil one who prowls around trying to devour people's faith. Protect them from the lies. In Christ's name, amen.